When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window. This is the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis on the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On the pod today, we bring news of interest in Spurs hero but nearly villain Christian Eriksen. We look back on an incredible night of drama in the Champions League as Manchester City are unceremoniously dumped out of the biggest tournament in club football. And Duncan reveals the Manchester United star who has decided to leave Old Trafford, but not before gobbling up an incredible wage packet, the details of which will have fans incredulous. Okay, we're going to start with a newsline from Ian with regards to Christian Eriksen. Um, He's a player, of course, that has been superb for Spurs over the years and has been an integral part in their run to the semi-final, as we saw last night, although he did very, very nearly uh, become responsible for probably the worst moment uh, in Spurs history if his uh, bad back pass had uh, actually stood in terms of the goal that followed. Ian, what's happening with his future? Yes, Christian Eriksen, someone who has had a lot of speculation regarding his future, um, his contract situation is that he is uh, out of contract a year this summer with Tottenham Hotspur. They've so far failed to renegotiate an extension to that. And the, the problem that Spurs have, which is a problem Spurs always have with a player um, once he gets into his late 20s, is that the player himself wants to be paid his market value. And Spurs, as we know, have a very structured and policed wages structure in terms of there's a, a ceiling on which which they're prepared to pay. Harry Kane's currently their, their highest earner, but currently earns under £200,000 a week. So when you look in comparison to other players in the Premier League, uh, Manchester United, Liverpool, Manchester City, um, Ericsson could easily command 250000 if not more. Um, one of the problems for Ericsson has been, has been the fact that his options um, have been limited by moves in the transfer market for other players in his position. Uh, Frankie de Jong's contract with Barcelona means that um, the option to go there is more or less ruled out Um, Real Madrid's pursuit of Paul Pogba means that there's a possibility that will not be an option for him either and so what I've heard from contacts today is that Bayern Munich have uh, entered into the race for Ericsson Uh, they realise that um, they've got a good uh, chance of signing him they would be willing to pay uh, the wages that Ericsson both expects and thinks he deserves uh, and also, of course, there a massive restructuring in terms of their squad happening uh, this summer, which has already begun with the purchase of uh, two new fullbacks for almost £90 million. So, yes, Ericsson uh, and Bayern Munich, I think, is a good fit. I think it's a club that uh, would suit Ericsson and his very technical style of play. But 
and I do stress this, it would be preferable to him if he could uh, get moved to Spain. But as I said, those options may well be limited unless Atletico Madrid come into the, the frame. And I'm told at this moment in time they're not looking to recruit in central midfield. Duncan, it strikes me here that um, Spurs may be on the verge of um, doing something that will be Daniel Levy's worst nightmare, which is win this Champions League. Because if they do, he's going to have to pay out a fortune in all these new contracts the players are going to be after. It's an interesting assessment. Um, look, I, I think the pressure to um, to renew the contracts or extend the contracts of key players is there regardless. I don't think the, um, the Alan Shearer argument from last season that these players don't deserve upgrades until they win something uh, is at all relevant, at all matters. Um, as Ian's pointed out, uh, all of the Tottenham players, all of the key Tottenham players are undervalued in terms of the salary they're getting paid to be um, top performers for a club that's reached the Champions League semi-final and uh, is constantly qualifying for Champions League through Premier League position um, amongst the group of players who have quite a low um, total salary cost compared to their competitors. So, you know, the market determines what these players are worth and the market is telling all of these players where you to be, to leave Tottenham Hotspur, you will get substantial pay rise going elsewhere. You know, easily uh, several of these players can make can double their money overnight if they are um, able to to leave the club. So that doesn't go away either way. I mean, if they win the Champions League, it gives them a little bit more agents, a little bit more leverage. But effectively, it's just a, it's moral leverage, and I don't think moral leverage has ever worked with with Daniel Levy anyway. Um, I actually think uh, winning the Champions League would be a positive for Levy in that I think the um, the end goal for Tottenham Hotspur, the end goal for Enoch, um, uh, owned by Joe Lewis, the primary owners of the shares of, of Tottenham Hotspur, is uh, to sell the club. Uh, that's the reason they built the stadium. Uh, that's the reason they made this immense investment in, in new infrastructure. The calculation was we can sell the club at a bigger profit if it's uh, everything is in place for um, the new owners, i.e. we deliver them a good squad, uh, Champions League football. I made a stadium, all the hassles of designing, uh, getting planning permission for and building the stadium completed and done. Um, so it, it's an easy buy. What you're then buying is a football club um, with brilliant facilities. I haven't even mentioned the training ground. They've also um, upgraded the, the training ground. So state-of-the-art facilities for English and European football, good squad of players, a big, big debt, yes. But, you know, if, if they're to sell to, for example, a Gulf state, um, you know, say Saudi Arabia are unable to buy Manchester United and decide to shift target to Tottenham Hotspur, Saudi Arabia or another Gulf state are not going to be bothered about um, 600 million or more of debt um, associated with the, the, the building of um, naming rights lane um, because they'll just wipe it out in, in the purchase. Um, it's, you know, the, the, this, these projects are um, vanity stroke PR, stroke political stroke sports washing projects. Um, cash is not the issue for those kind of buyers. What you want is a club that can seek, succeed at the top level, have a chance of winning the Champions League. 
Um, immediately. So you, you wipe out the debt uh, and then you use your own finances to, to buy better players, um, to retain players uh, like, for example, Christian Eriksen. I think if you had a buyer coming at Tottenham Hotspur this summer, one of the first things he would do would be to, to, to renew Christian Eriksen's contract, which, as Ian suggests, is doable. Um, and, and then you, um, you target success through that. So I, I don't think I don't think winning the Champions League is going to be an issue. It should should make it more sellable, um, and that I, I'm clear is the long term goal of what uh, Daniel Levy and Joe Lewis want to do with the club. You know, they're not they're not in it as supporters for the glory of watching football. It's it's a similar situation to um, to the Glazers. I, I, in fact, I think the Glazers have attended more matches at Old Trafford than Joe Lewis has um, attended matches at, at White Hart Lane and uh, and its new successor. We've seen him appear for the first game um, at, uh, at the new stadium, but that's extremely rare. Um, and it, it has always been explained to me is that this is a commercial project. This is a project for profit, which has been run extremely well. You have to credit um, Daniel Levy for the way he has learned the transfer market and used the transfer market to his advantage and done well recruiting coaches and, and got them into a position where they are regularly qualifying for the Champions League on a, on a wage bill far less than, than any of their competitors. Um, you know, the, the, the problem, um, if they don't sell, if they don't find the buyer, is how much money's been spent on the stadium. That's where you can question Levy, is that this huge overspend on the stadium, which is going to be a millstone around Tottenham Hotspur for as long as they do not have uh, large external funding to clear that debt out. They're going, to be, they're going to be looking at paying massive interest payments each year off the increased revenue from the stadium just to keep, just to pay for the extra cost that was incurred in, um, in being a perfectionist in terms of building the stadium and then not setting up fixed price contracts um, when they uh, set up the deals with the contractors to build, to build it in the first place. And it, it may seem um, a small detail, but I think we should not underestimate the significance of the fact that um, the announcement in the last 24 hours of two NFL fixtures at Tottenham's new stadium this year uh, of course, using this uh, remarkable um, second pitch, which uh, lives underneath the football pitch uh, at the new stadium. Now, there's no, um, there's no way. This isn't just some kind of you know uh, indulgence or vanity uh, thing that Spurs have done here. They are looking long term to potentially uh, host England and London's first NFL team playing in the National Football League in the USA. And remember that at the moment, um, franchises in the NFL will travel the length and breadth of um, the country of the USA. Therefore, coming to London to play games is not necessarily a massively off-putting scenario for them with regards to the logistics. Now, let's just uh, look at that in in its kind of, uh, in, in in that detail that, Will that attract American investors to buy Tottenham Hotspur as a football club, knowing that they can then also host a new franchise? Because remember, it's very, very difficult to break into the NFL, NBA, MLB in the States. It's very, very difficult to get the license to to open a new franchise. However, what we know from the last seven, eight years when NFL games have been played at Wembley is that the NFL are actively looking to... 
um, further the the sport in Europe. They see it as a tangible and valuable potential investment factor. And therefore, anyone buying Tottenham has the automatic logistical ability to be at the forefront of a new franchise for the NFL, which would be worth billions of pounds in over future years. So they've been very, very clever. And Joe Lewis and Daniel Levy are nobody's fools. They, they know exactly what they've been doing, why they decided to keep on investing and getting into debt for the stadium. The fact that the Champions League semi-finals come along um, it, it is coincidental, but definitely, definitely a massive bonus for them because it puts them thoroughly at the forefront um, of European football in terms of this is how far we've come, this is where we've grown. Um, only the second time the club have ever been in a European Cup semi-final, uh, 1962 being the first time. So if they were to, to beat Ajax and go into the final, then again, that becomes much more of a, a, a bigger prospect and a much more valuable um, investment opportunity for, for people. And let's face it, if the Times of London is to be believed, then the, um, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia uh, bought a supposed Leonardo da Vinci painting, which might not be a Leonardo original, as it turns out, for £500 million pounds, uh, at a sale in October last year. So when Duncan talks about writing off the debt for the stadium, well, he could always just try and sell his Salvatore Monday. <laughs> <laughs> what about this game itself, guys? Uh, Duncan, this was a kind of match that, just as, an, uh, as a football fan, you watch in wonderment. Uh, I have no stake in either side, but it was just a wonderful, wonderful spectacle and such an enjoyable match that swung from one end to the other and the momentum was with one side and then back. It was quite incredible, wasn't it? You talked about fine margins in the podcast on Wednesday, and it certainly felt that that almost was the story of the match about the Champions League at that level. Yeah, look, you could break the fine margin down to, I think, uh, whether Bernardo Silva touched the ball or not. I think if Bernardo Silva, who is such a good player, he was able to control that Ericsson um, disastrous uh, back pass uh, and... Uh, and uh, take a bit of pace off it. Um, if he hadn't been able to touch that ball, it probably would still have gone to Sergio. Uh, and if he hadn't touched it, it would have been a goal. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that's and the finest of margins there. Um, just in that in that one uh, final defining incident in the game, it was a brilliant game of football to watch. Uh, incredibly dramatic. Um, lots of lots and lots of skill on the field. Um, but I think telling once again of where um, Pep Guardiola is as um, as coach of Manchester City, and you know if you've listened to this podcast from the beginning, um, you'll have heard on multiple occasions we've been talking about how there's a huge question mark about Guardiola's ability to coach his teams in these decisive knockout games, and he's now been three years at Manchester City with the most expensive squad in the history of the game. He's gone out in the round of 16 to Monaco. Um, he's gone out in uh, the quarterfinals to Liverpool and he's now gone out in the quarterfinals again to Tottenham. He was asked about this in a very short pre press conference he did post-match. I think it was less than five minutes in all. Um, he was asked about his, his team's vulnerability 
in the Champions League. He, he sort of paused for a while and his first response was, well, we don't concede a lot of goals. Well, sorry, Pep, you went out to Monaco conceding six, Liverpool conceding five and Tottenham conceding four. If your defence says you don't concede a lot of goals, then you really need to have a proper think about how you're approaching these matches because um, it's not working. And the expectation from the owners is that Pep Guardiola would be brought to the club and have this investment, this unprecedented investment and reshaping of the team um, with the express intent and expectation that they would win the Champions League. And they are a long, long way away from that at the moment. You know, they're not even getting past teams like Monaco and, and Tottenham. I think um, this has got to be a worry for um, for Guardiola, for Fernand Soriano, the chief executive, and Chiqui Baguera Stan, the sport director at Manchester City, because as Duncan really points out, um, the investment which Abu Dhabi have put into Manchester City is not about winning the Premier League. I think as long as uh, City def- successfully defend the Premier League title this season, then the Pep will be allowed it's certainly one more shot at the Champions League, um, but they will have to improve substantially uh, in order to, to, to win it. Um, look, it's, it wasn't the only shot this week, was it? Because Ajax um, disposed of Juventus. Um, and, you know, you could say, well, it's, it's a year for, you know, the, the lesser teams to, to prevail. But at the same time, you've got last year's finals, Liverpool against Barcelona in the other semi-finals. So um, th- there's no real excuse for Guardiola regarding um, the way that they capitulated. Uh, Ian, Scott- Ian, are, are we not being a little unfair on Pep here? I mean, for me, they almost entirely dominated that game with the exception of the first maybe 20 minutes when every time Spurs went forward, they looked like they were going to score. But the vast majority of the game, they dominated. Isn't it just about, about fine margins? Well, it is about fine margins, Johnny, but the, the fact is that Pep's paid £15.5 million per year to make sure that those fine margins go in Manchester City's favour. And, and they're not, um, in, as far as Champions League is concerned. Now, don't get me wrong, um, my, my 11-year-old son said to me today, who's the best football team in the world right now? And I said, well, it's probably Barcelona. And second is probably Manchester City, and third is probably Liverpool. But, you know, you could probably shuffle those three around um, and, and see what you come up with. But the fact of the matter is, you do not get paid that amount of money. You do not get the investment that he's had just to win domestic titles. And look, I think we're being a little harsh on Spurs here because I think he's provided an awful lot of um, the entertainment quality and value for that game. I was actually trying to go through my own sort of personal history of Champions League matches to find a game that was as dramatic, as entertaining, etc., etc. And the one I came up with was the 1999 semi-final second leg between... Uh, Juventus and Manchester United when uh, United were 2-0 down uh, two goals by Alessandro Del Piero um, in about 30 minutes and came back to win 3-2 in a game where Roy Keane was booked early on in the game knowing he would miss the final but absolutely dragged Manchester United back into that game by the scruff of their neck it was an incredible performance by an individual but also incredible performance by a team because uh, it was the great combination of uh, Dwight York and Andy Cole up front, which provided the goals. So um, I, I think Duncan's correct in saying that there will be a post-mortem uh, at City with regards to why they failed yet again 
to even make the final, having been turned over by Monaco, Liverpool and Tottenham. I mean, let's face it, if, if you're winning the Premier League and therefore beating your closest rivals, in this case Liverpool and Tottenham, then why aren't you able to do it in Europe? Uh, that, that is the that, question. That's the key point here. And we know Manchester City are better than Tottenham Hotspur. <laughs> we know they're better in the Premier League. We know they, uh, they, they should be beating them in two uh, knockout games. Yet Pep Guardiola goes to White Hart Lane and decides to change his formation um, to play Tottenham in the first match, plays more defensively. That was a game of fine margins again, but it ended up a, a Tottenham win, which put him in difficulties in the second leg, particularly if Tottenham were to score early on. He then has a defence set up, which concedes two goals, I think, from, from Tottenham's first two attacks, which puts him, although he, his team scored as well, it puts him effectively two and a half goals behind on the tie. Why do they concede goals? Well, the most expensive defender in his team, the guy he, he'd asked specifically to be brought in because of the way he plays, um, the, the way he tells them to take risks on the ball in the defence makes two ridiculous mistakes. Um, passing the ball to Song for the first goal and then getting caught in possession for the second goal. Now that is a product of Guardiola choosing Americ Laporte to be a, a centre point of a defence and the way he asks his teams to play. There's a susceptibility there because of the way he sets his teams up to play. And are we being, you know, then they dominate the game. Well, what a surprise they dominate the game at that stage because Tottenham have a, a you know, a two and a half goal lead at that stage. So all they have to do is stop the other team from scoring and they're through. Um, and, you know, let's, let's summarise the whole thing. Earlier in the season, um, Pep Guardiola referred to Tottenham Hotspur as the Harry Kane team. Last night, he lost to the Harry Kane team without Harry Kane. I was going to say that, Duncan, that, you know, they lost to the Tottenham Hotspur side minus their best player and their, and their obviously, their talismanic striker stroke captain. Um, but we shouldn't uh, in any way reduce the role of Hoyman Sun, who has, for me has been um, one of the players of the season, if not the player of the season, uh, rivaling Sadio Mane, as far as I'm concerned, with regards to the goal, you know, important goals, uh, also his link-up play, etc. as well. Someone I, I know who knows Pep quite well, who has followed his career closely, said to me this morning that if there's a fault in Pep Guardiola, is that sometimes he overthinks games. So, in a way, he tries to be too clever. So, instead of just trusting in his players and not micromanaging them in every single position, just trusting them to say, look, do you know what? You guys are better than Spurs. Just go out and play your normal game, normal tactics that we have when we play in the Premier League, and you'll win this. Instead, he changes his formation or his setup. He changes um, players, and he tells them to play in a different way tactically as well. Now, from my experience, when you do that as a coach, the players kind of look at you and think, what, you don't trust us? You think that we have to play in a different way to beat this particular opponent? Surely we're better than them anyway and we can just go about our, our game and business as normal, and the result will go our way. So you put doubt in the mind of the players if you ask them to play in a different way when the way that they play normally has been so successful. And I wonder if Guardiola, both not just this quarterfinal against Tottenham Hotspur, but last year's against Liverpool, has done exactly that. He's, he's taken something which isn't broken, it, isn't broken and, and kind of cracked it and said, 
oh, well, you know what? We have to do something different for this game because it's going to demand something different from us in order to get through. When actual fact, it shouldn't be. I agree entirely. At Liverpool, he changed the formation and, and the, the team fell apart because he asked them to do things that they hadn't done all season. And that, and that was a key element in the losing the game. So you've got Tottenham, you've got Liverpool last year. And Mon the Monaco match, uh, the away match, he went into with a two-goal lead against one of the best counter-attacking teams in Europe and decided to try and kill it off in the, in the first half of the match with with full-backs that he didn't have trust in, leaving them exposed to Monaco in the counter-attack. Lo and behold, um, Monaco get the 3-1 result they need to go through in away goals. So that's every single one of these ties lost because of tactical mistakes by the man who's paid the highest salary in football to manage the most expensive squad in football to win the Champions League. Pretty damn stuff. That's my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> you summarise it perfectly. I'm, I'm a Pep fan. What can I say? Well, I think we're all Pep fans, really. But I think as well, you know, it's our job to hold people to account if yeah. they don't produce. Um, and that's, you know, part of what we do. Uh, I think what's really um, intriguing and compelling is that these two teams face each other again uh, at midday on Saturday this weekend in a game where um, 24 hours before Liverpool kick a ball, Manchester City can go back to the top of the Premier League. Um, but again, it's uh, it's an away game at the Tottenham Stadium. Um, Tottenham, you've got to ask yourself, what, you know, I saw Gary Neville tweet last night, um, well done Spurs, why don't you rest a few lads on Saturday, I, so that <laughs> Liverpool don't win the title. <laughs> rest a few lads on Saturday for the semi-final. <laughs> let, let City have a free roll. Um, that's... Not going to happen, clearly. Um, you have to ask yourself, um, psychologically, what does this do to Manchester City when they line up? Um, you know, less than you know, 72 hours after going out to, um, to the same Spurs team in the Champions League semi-final, what does it do to them to then go back and play them again? Uh, again, you've got to ask yourself, well, Spurs will be physically and emotionally drained players from um, what happened in midweek, but um, they should have motivation, momentum with regards to what they're trying to achieve this season again, which is Champions League qualification. So it sets up pretty brilliantly, really, um, when you think about this in what is now for Manchester City, a, a must-win game. I mean, is it is it correct, Duncan, to say that Man City are one, one bad result away from a, a bad season, a poor season? Look, I think this is the greatest challenge to Pep Guardiola this season, is this game um, against Tottenham, because as you point out, the psychological damage of Wednesday night could be huge. Um, and they have to win. They have to win. They have to get back to playing the football we all know they're capable of playing, and they have to, they have to get uh, the result that we would expect them to get in normal circumstances. These aren't normal circumstances. I think there are, there are some things in their favour in that Tottenham were the defensive side for most of the match for obvious reasons and therefore spent more of the game chasing the ball and you know exerted, I think, more energy than Manchester City in that match. And they're already um, quite down on in terms of the number of players available to them anyway. So that should help City. Um, 
But uh, this is the big challenge for Guardiola. I, I expect him to to meet the challenge. I think he will he will come up. Um, he'll get his players back focused, and he will um, choose the right way to play against Tottenham in this game. And you know, Pochettino, huge huge plaudits to him for reaching the Champions League semi-final for knocking Manchester City out but he also tactically was a, a little bit sketchy last night in the sense that he, he set up with a narrow back four um, with no one covering the fullbacks so the fullbacks were asked to come inside and and uh, and block the spaces for um, Bernardo Silva and Raheem Sterling um, and David Silva and Kevin De Bruyne to break into with, with a, a Aguero and, and uh, it left a lot of room in the wings. There was no one playing wide for the first 30 minutes of the match until Sissoko was injured and that's where all Manchester City's goals were coming from. It was playing the ball wide, um, players taking on Trippier and Rose and, and getting shots in and goal and he didn't change that what seemed like an obvious solution which was to go to uh, two banks of four, uh, put wingers uh, in front of his fullbacks to help them cover Sterling and Bernardo Silva until Sissoko's injury forced him to do that. So I would have a question mark over his sort of in-game response because in a situation where you've you've got your two goals, you've got a two and a half goal advantage in the way tie, the obvious thing to do there is just um, close it down and make it make it hard for the opposition to use the attacking methods they've used. So. Probably Pochettino will have learned from that. He's not stupid um, and, and come up with a different system um, on Saturday. But yeah, it could could well be the league title on the line. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what the response is if Guardiola fails to win the league this year. You know, if, if he ends up with three seasons at Manchester City um, with the resources he's had, one Premier League title, not reached a single Champions League semi-final, um, two League Cups and possibly an FA Cup um, from, from this season. Um, surely there will be some of the people who have uh, sort of lauded him as the greatest manager in, in world football and someone who has revolutionized, revolutionized the English game and taken it to a different level and asked whether this Manchester City team is the greatest team that English football has ever seen. Surely even they will be asking some questions of, of just how good a manager Guardiola is and just how good this team actually is. Well, there you heard it, Mr. Hunter. He's calling you out. Get yourself <laughs> on here. I'm not sure it's Graham Hunter he's calling out. Um, <laughs> I'd just like to add to that and just I've seen teams um, get to a point in their season in and in, um, let's just say, an era of a particular coach that Manchester City now find themselves in. And it's a defining moment. Um, what happens on Saturday against Spurs could well define Pep Guardiola's time, at, just not just at Manchester City, but possibly um, the second phase of his career, which is the phase away from Barcelona. And how they respond and how they pick themselves up to go out and play and get the points they need to re-establish themselves at the top of the Premier League table and to retain um, the power in the, um, in the Premier League title race. Because obviously, if City win all their games from now until the end of the season, then they will win the Premier League title. So... This is, it can be underestimated just how important this game is um, because it's coming onto the back of this huge, huge deflation and disappointment of going out to Spurs in the quarter final of the Champions League when 
you know, we're talking about a season where uh, could they do the quadruple? Would they, you know, the first team ever to uh, be able to um, achieve that particular landmark? Well, we know now that that's not going to be the case. And we also know that he's got a dressing room full of guys who have won the Premier League before uh, and some of whom have gone close from the Champions League. Um, but City themselves as a club have never won it. Now, you can't underestimate just how much effect that has on players and uh, their motivation, their, their emotional energy to get themselves up again, to play, to go again on Saturday. So, uh, as I said, I think this could be a very, very pivotal weekend. OK, well, I'm going to move us on to Manchester United and Duncan has some news about an astonishing contract for a United player and his potential future transfer. Yeah, I think this is some news that will be well received by a lot of the Manchester United support and that is that, that Manchester United are trying to sell Marcus Rojo um, and Rojo is open to leaving the club um, and his agent is exploring options um, to go elsewhere. One of the clubs that have inquired and I'm told are very, very interested in signing him are Fenerbahce. Um, now, the issue here is going to be whether Rojo is prepared to take a salary cut to go to Turkish football um, and to be a starter, which is obviously what he's going to be if he moves to Fener, um, rather than be the fifth-choice centre-back at Manchester United. He's well aware that Lily Gunnar Solskjaer doesn't um, trust him for next season and sees him as expendable as being the, the, the centre-back that he's prepared to let go to, um, to bring a new centre-back in for next season. Um, I'm told he'd prefer to remain in England. Um, he likes the lifestyle here. Um, he likes living in the country. And if he could find a Premier League club to take him on, he would be uh, interested in that move. Last summer, he had the same option. And Everton were very, very keen on signing him. But Everton basically were told, you cannot afford his salary. Um, so forget about it. Um, what I'm told is that... Um, reliably is that when Edward Wood decided to upgrade um, Rojo's contract to retain him at Manchester United uh, last season, giving him a new contract until 2021 with an option for a further year, he increased Rojo's salary to roughly £160,000 a week, so roughly £8 million a year. And that is way above what um, just about any club in uh, outside the top six, in fact, <laughs> including some of the clubs in the top six, having had a long uh, conversation about Tottenham here, would pay for a starting uh, top centre-back, never mind someone who has been a reserve at Manchester United and who has played just 192 minutes of Premier League football so far this season. So it's an interesting situation in that Rojo uh, is ready to move, um, but... Uh, his salary has been pushed to such a level by Ed Woodward. I think it's going to be difficult for him to find a buyer who's prepared to take that salary on, who Rojo's prepared to move to, um, without some kind of compensation going on. Um, so I think perhaps we're seeing a situation similar to Wayne Rooney um, when he was moved out of Manchester United, where the club might have to uh, compensate um, uh, and adjust the salary of the player 
um, to get him a new home and, and kind of take some of that um, large financial commitment that they have to the player. So, you know, contract to 2021 at eight million gross, that's another 16 million pounds um, that they are, are due to pay on, on the player over the next two seasons. And this is, gonna, I think, a test case of where what Woodward is prepared to do in terms of realising that sometimes you've got to cut your losses in players. Um, sometimes you've got to open up a squad place by saying this guy is not good enough, it's not what we want, we need to improve our squad, we need to get him off the wage bill, even if we can't get all of that wage off, we've got to sacrifice um, and get some of the wage off and not be silly and demanding a ridiculous transfer fee as has happened time and time again with players, um, you know, Matteo Darmian is, I think, the prime example here, who's been held on season after season when he's not first choice um, because Woodward has been trying to demand a high transfer fee for him, even when there's significant interest from clubs that uh, Darmian wanted to move to in Serie A. Uh, you're right, Mick, there, Duncan. I've, uh, <clears throat> something I think which sums Marcus Rowe up quite well. It was a current Premier League striker who said to me, uh, having played against Rowe on a few occasions, his tattoos are writing checks. His talent can't cash. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Well, it's time for the legendary quickfire round. I'm anticipating a drum roll, gentlemen. No, I'm not getting one. Thank you. Thank you. You, you, you master sound effects, as you know. <laughs> Can you provide the audio here, Johnny? It's up yes. to you to put the drum roll in if you want one. Today, we are looking at the semi-finals of the Champions League and then what we think will be the final and who will win. So, we're going to start off with um, Spurs against Ajax. And uh, I'm going to ask Duncan, first of all, who do you think is going to go through from that tie? Um, I'm going to go with the team that, as a football neutral, I would like to see win. Um, and I'm going to go for Ajax. And why would I like to see them win? Because I think they have built a exceptionally good and exciting and uh, delightful to watch squad and we know that this is our, their only chance to win the Champions League we know that this squad has one shot at it and it's going to be broken up um, the key players are going to leave uh, they'll retain some but they will lose Frankie de Jong for sure and I think Matthias, Matthias de Ligt for sure plus um, probably some of the other um, important performers and it wouldn't it be lovely to see Ajax, um, who have invested and come up with a strategy of focusing on young talents and, and staying committed to um, playing technical, intelligent football, um, pushing those young talents into the team quicker than they have ever done before, to see them rewarded um, with a place in the Champions League finals and even better for them to um, to win the Champions League. I think it would be a, a slap around the face to the ECA, um, to people like um, the owner uh, and, and president of, of Juventus, who is pushing for a Super League that would exclude um, clubs like Ajax from it. Um, and it's a reminder of just how good a format we have in the Champions League, um, the, the knockout format with the best clubs, the most informed clubs in Europe playing off against each other with away goals, which you know people are also going after away goals at the moment. And I think anyone who goes after away goals should just watch last uh, Wednesday's game between Manchester City and, and think about how the away goal rule was the thing that put that match on the knife edge in that 
either at each goal that was scored by either side turned the result from win to loss um, rather than a, a draw because we have away goals. So, yeah, and I think they're good enough to do it. I think they, they are playing so well, um, uh, tactically intelligent, but with a lot of belief um, and just a, a huge amount of technical ability. And, uh, and uh, you know, Tottenham have the Harry Kane of the Harry Kane team out injured almost certainly. Um, Son Chung Ming suspended for the, the first leg and, and they're pretty low on personnel, as I mentioned earlier. So um, probably I would make Ajax the favourites to get through that game. Ian, are you going to give me a choice to make by disagreeing with Mr Castles? Well, I was going to say legendary quick fire means exactly that after Duncan's like four minute conversation <laughs> there about why Ajax will win. So, no, that's, I, I, why the, that's why the quick fire is legendary, Ian. You know it is, it is, it is. It's the ironic quick fire round. Uh, no, I'll go to Barca versus Liverpool. I'll, I'll happily accept Duncan's um, Ajax theory. Um, Obviously, uh, fans of McBookie know that at this point in time, whenever I make a prediction, you should definitely back the opposite. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, thank you, Johnny. <laughs> ex- for that. Except, except the notable exception to that rule is, of course, that wonderful, wonderful horse that you tipped me off to Pentland He's Hills. Pentland, Pentland Hills. Hills. 20 yeah. to 1. I got the McGarry call a week before it, it happened. 20 pounds on the nose. Booyah! Yeah. And of course, all our listeners are saying, why didn't you say this on the podcast? Rather than giving you all these really bad football We, we don't approve of betting. Although if any, if any, any betting companies out there want to sponsor us, yes, are, we do, we're, we we're do. open to offers. <laughs> uh, so Barca versus Liverpool. Uh, the bookies' favourites, obviously Barcelona. Um, we understand why. Uh, Ernesto Valverde is under a lot of pressure to win this uh, particular title. And uh, he, he has the advantage in this case of having already effectively wrapped up uh, La Liga, whereas of course we know Liverpool under incredible pressure every single game they play in the Premier League to, just, to, just to stay in the race with Manchester City, who still have it in their hands but I am going to go against the green here and say that I think Liverpool are the kind of team who can exploit Barcelona's weaknesses, they're not very quick in defence, they don't like playing against counter-attacking teams, Liverpool are the classic counter-attacking team, but I think the most important factor in this particular tie is what Liverpool learned from playing against Real Madrid in the final last year when they lost. Um, you've got a group of players now who know what it's like to lose in the biggest game of their lives. They don't want to be doing that again. And they have the experience. They've got um, more intelligent in terms of the way they play in Champions League football matches. And they will be more canny in the way that they play in camp now. They've played there four times um, in European competition historically, and have yet to lose two wins and two draws. Um, so going back to Anfield for the second leg, having got, I think, which they can achieve a positive result in the first leg, could see Liverpool go all the way to the final um, at Atletico Madrid Stadium in May. So I am going to go Liverpool for the second semi-final. If Duncan disagrees, and if he agrees, then it'll be Liverpool-Ajax in the final. Um, I agree with you in the sense that I think this is a great opportunity for Liverpool to reach the final. I think Barcelona are um, the ideal opponents for them in this game. I think it, playing Ajax would be a harder match for them for the reasons you point out. Um, I would add uh, that the energy levels of this team are absolutely unbelievable. Um, Liverpool just come off playing four crucial um, matches 
in the space of 12 days, um, barely rotating their first team. Um, yet they outran Porto um, last night in a game where they were able, where they only had to play in the break because they had a 2-0 lead from the first leg. And Porto are the team who had covered the most distance uh, on average um, of any team uh, in the Champions League this season, which is a, an extraordinary performance. Um, you know, as I said the other day, it's it's amazing to think how um, Jurgen Klopp has his team at this physical level when he keeps on picking the same players game after game in matches. And I think that's going to be a huge advantage against Barcelona. I think they will definitely be this, the uh, the physically stronger team uh, capable of covering more ground. And I think tactically uh, the game is set up for their you know counter-pressing, counter-attacking style. Um, they're better defensively than they were before. So there's a lot of things in their favour, um, but I, I think the desire um, of Lionel Messi to win another Champions League, um, he's got some points to prove in terms of his recognition as being the best player in the world. Um, I think Valverde is a, a more pragmatic coach um, than uh, Barcelona have had in the past, and they do clearly have uh, better players across the board. Liverpool so I think that's going to be just enough to edge Barcelona through so um, Captain Duck will have to make a decision over who we have in his final. Well I think Liverpool will take care of Barcelona quite comfortably because I think Barcelona uh, playing in the first leg at the new Camp will go all out as usual, they'll play their usual style and Liverpool will just lap that up. I can see them winning in the Camp now so I think I'm, we'll get through. A bold I'm not, statement I'm, there. I'm not Captain Duck. I'm not surprised because Captain Duck clearly wears a red shirt. I've never ever seen him predict a Liverpool loss in any game we've ever done in the transfer window. I have to say, Liverpool are probably my English team. I never guessed. <laughs> I'm, to be I'm, fair, you're good company, Captain Duck, because um, Mark Lawrence apparently has only predicted one Liverpool loss in the last five years <laughs> on predictions. So uh, if, if you were going with Laura's predictions, they would actually have had a clean sweep of all trophies in the last five years. Yeah. So Liverpool are going through. I would couch that by saying if, if Leo Messi decides to turn up and pull off his usual miracle, then obviously Barcelona have a very good chance as well. And of course, we, we know Leo doesn't normally choose to turn up, don't we? So, you know. Yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Um, fine margins, gents. Fine margins. <laughs> maybe, um, maybe, maybe Virgil Van Dijk will use the Chris Smalling um, first leg defensive technique against Messi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see if that works. Um, okay, so we've got a final of Liverpool against Ajax. Duncan, who wins? It's going to be a good game if that does turn up to be end up being the final. Um, I think Liverpool win it if they get to play Ajax in the final. I think the uh, the experience that they have, um, which is clearly greater than a very young Ajax team, um, defensively stronger, um, and yeah, I think look, I think in the, in the situation, if Ajax had been playing Liverpool in the quarterfinal, I would fancy Ajax, but in a final, uh, one-off game, um, I think I'll go for Liverpool. I think um, I think. Yes, as I say, having lost before and and, they, and and going into a game like that with the expectation they should win and the belief that they can, they are the better team. Um, and a you know, strong defensive base and counter-attacking strategy is probably just enough to get them through it. 
Ian, are you going to give the Duckmeister General another decision to make, or are you going to agree um, with Mr. Castles? I think that if Ajax make the final, as the uh, as has been predicted by Dr. Castles, then it's one miracle too far in terms of uh, winning. Um, but I would certainly like to introduce a caveat of Liverpool's pursuit of the Premier League title, I think, being more important and prioritised than the Champions League. I'm not saying clearly that they're going to you know, throw the Champions League away because that's not how football works or how football teams work. However, I do think that let's just say Manchester City's lose points either this weekend against Tottenham or indeed in the Manchester derby uh, next Wednesday, then Liverpool's motivation, I think, and their focus will shift very specifically onto winning the Premier League title. 29 years without it. I've got an important question for you here. Go on then. Do you think that Liverpool fans will be so happy with their Premier League title win and or Champions League win that Duncan Castles will get a 24-hour Twitter abuse pass from Merseyside. <laughs> what doesn't he have that already? <laughs> <laughs> no, he certainly does not. I think if Liverpool do a Champions League and Premier League double, Doctor Castles should wear a Liverpool top live on the Transfer Window podcast, where it can't be seen anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I think even Duncan might avoid abuse for 24 hours after that if that happens. It's a possibility, Donkey. Have you ever heard the phrase, I told you so? (laughs) (laughs) Once or twice. (laughs) Well, it's time to slam this particular transfer window shut, but fear not. We'll be back on Monday to fulfil all your podcasting needs. If you want to continue the debate, you can talk to me at Johnny R. McFarlane. You can talk to Duncan at Duncan Castles. And of course, you can talk to Ian at the rather strange Twitter handle, of at GarboSJ. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review. It just really helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Monday, thanks for listening.